freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hey, I'm very excited today. I've got one of my really good friends who I've never met in person, like most of my friends these days, uh, Dan Hall, who we have been in contact for years. And in fact, uh, we've known about each other for, for many years, going back to the days of the blog review. Uh, as is my custom, I don't chew up your time talking about who I'm talking with. You can run him down and Dan is going to tell us a little bit about himself. Anyway, he's got lots of thoughts. Dan has spent a, a lot of time. He's a, he is a lawyer in DC. He is a, a, a blogger who has been kicked off almost every platform at one point or another. But his background isn't what you think it would be. Nothing about Dan Hall is what you think it would be. So Dan, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for asking me. I really appreciate it, uh, both of you. This is, uh, I'm excited to do it. And I think all of your listeners should know that I begged to be on this program. It's true. You, um, you did, but, but. You, I know I you did. did I can. You, you, you almost, you kind of told me that it wasn't so much a beg though. You instructed me and you know that I was. Well, no, I mean, I, I'm at the point where for some reason I can get on shows and, uh, or even get on television. I don't do it much because I don't like to mix, um, especially I don't like to mix litigation with, with, um, you know, doing interviews and stuff like that. But I called Ron. I said, this is, this is uh, Dan Hall. And he, he said, who? <laughs> Not true. Not true. Uh, and uh, I said, Dan Hall. Oh, yeah. How'd you get my number? <laughs> and I, uh, I said, you gave it to me a long time ago. I said, I'm really busy. You know that. So what do you want? And then I said, I said, it's about speech. Might want to talk about Proud Boys and Antifa. And he said, okay, I'll I'll let you on, and you sound pretty desperate. I said, thanks, Ron. That's actually entirely accurate. Dan, however, it does not exactly have what we would call a history of uh, being aligned with deplorables. So maybe in your case, you should give us a little bit of a sense of what it is, what you've been doing in D.C. and who you've been doing it with. Not the kind of detail that will get either one of us in trouble, but Kind of what was it that made you after you've been litigating now for what 65 70 years what it is that made you feel this great motivation before you you know before you are no longer able to participate fully in society to to, to get on the culmination podcast well i i think it's fair to say that um i uh, i'm not terribly ideological i like things that work uh i like people in general, and um, I think people solve problems. And I have been a little bit concerned in the last probably four or five years of some of the things I've seen with respect to speech, because all, all liberalism and civilization, Western, Eastern, anything, you know, sort of begins with speech. And I, I see that getting sort of a short shrift, if not being attacked. So I really haven't changed my politics much, but most of my background is a, well, I'm a, I'm a corporate America brat. And I was born in DC, but I grew up in um, 
Aberdeen, Maryland, Chevy Chase, Grand Rapids, Chicago, two different times, Detroit, and then we ended up in the promised land of Cincinnati. And I um, was uh, in the suburb I grew up in, was usually one of the few people who voted Democrat. And I did, I did it primarily to annoy people, and it worked. <laughs> and, um, but it, you know, it was, uh, I am a baby boomer and, and a uh, probably uh, one that would be called a classic white liberal during most of my life. And I still consider myself to be that. But I think everything begins and ends with speech. You have nothing without it. And I've, we've talked about that before. So that's led me to do some other things, including going from sitting on Democratic boards and raising money for Hillary Clinton to um, um, registering Republican a few years ago, not because I'm a heavy Republican, I'm not, but I thought I should change it. And I did not vote for Trump the first time, I voted for Trump the second time. Excuse me, I'm never, um, I'm usually pretty bad with predicting uh, who's gonna be president. I, <laughs> I picked the wrong campaigns. I worked for Wes Clark diligently in uh, San Diego. That didn't work right up there. And um, I, I, do, I do like, I, I do like uh, participating and in, in keeping my hand in. And I've always been kind of an activist, but I don't think you would call it liberal or, or conservative. Certainly some of the things I've, I've been saying lately, people associate with um, the right, but I don't think there's anything right wing about me. I like speech. Well, what 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 was it that managed to get you kicked off Twitter, for example? I don't. I have no idea. <laughs> I, really, I don't know. It was. Um, I don't know. I know it came at the, at the right time because I was spending too much time on Twitter in the sense that if I just wanted to vent, I was traveling a lot. I, I've always traveled a lot. I, I if I had some you know funny insight or something that I thought people should think about, I would wherever I was, I would do it. But about in January, I was kicked off for the second time, and I, I don't know why, and I've never appealed it. Uh, I wouldn't give them the satisfaction of going through that, um, so I didn't appeal either time, but it, it happened at a time when I was plugging my homeless clothing for the homeless program, and um, which I always, which I think you know about. Yes, and, and it was it was kind of always strange when we would get these pitches from you because all of a sudden you'd stop being the very humorous and iconoclastic and edgy Dan Hall. And all of a sudden you'd say, hey, by the way, they're really, people are really cold out there. No, street people are, are, are a pain in the ass, all right? Um, but I don't think we should let them freeze to death. And there are, I, I know enough from living in cities uh, most of my life, even though I kind of grew up in uh, rural uh, areas uh, as a kid, uh, that, um, you know, when they have the 30 most coldest nights, people do suffer from hypothermia and they do that because they don't want to go to the shelters and there's good reasons for that. Good reasons to not want to go. Yeah, they don't want to go, the, they want, don't sure. want to go. It could be, and it's not a mental illness thing. They just don't all, always, uh, they just don't want to go. Women don't feel safe. People think they're going to get ripped off. So they stay outside and they die. And I think that's wrong. However, um, during the warmer um, uh, times, I think it's okay to say, get a job. But uh, yeah, it's just, and I, I grew up with that tradition. But you were, you were mentioning this by way of explaining something else. I had asked you how you managed to get off Twitter or get banned. Yeah, yeah, I was, I, I, I really don't know. I mean, I just don't know. I, uh, I assume it's because somebody reported me, um, but I wasn't doing anything, but, uh, I, don't, I know I was kicked off Twitter around the time of uh, 
the midterm elections uh, two and a half years ago, and then it happened again in January, but I, I really don't know. I was kicked off above the law um, by a good friend of mine named David Latt, and that was um, for allegedly, I don't know what it was. Uh, I made some joke about- um, Probably women. It probably was. And, and around that time, they decided it would be a good idea to ban all the comments. So we started our own uh, discourse somewhere else, but they weren't. The comment, the comments weren't. They they weren't racist. They were just they weren't racist. They weren't sexist. They weren't um, homophobic. They were just funny. They were just funny, and they, a lot of them were just funny. And one of the things I've noticed is that the left has not only become illiberal; it's just not funny anymore. I mean, they don't have a sense of the humor, and um, there's this solemn kind of seriousness about uh, everything that they do. And you see that particularly when one of, and that's one of the things I want to talk about with Antifa, Antifa versus the Proud Boys. Antifa is really serious. Uh, nothing's a joke. And um, whereas uh, Proud Boys and some other uh, groups have been associated, for some reason, this mislabeled far right or extremist uh, have a sense of humor and are satirical. But I don't, you know, I don't think about Twitter that much anymore. Uh, I miss, I do miss it because I miss some of the people on it, but um, the, the people who run Twitter, I'm sure are well-intentioned, but really don't get civics. And I don't know if that's a generational thing, and it's astounding. Uh, they think good tyranny is okay. Well, it's not just the people who, who run Twitter who think that, right? I mean, I think that's a pretty widespread um, way of looking at things now among a very substantial part of the country, mostly the left. Sure, sure. And our, our well, the national infrastructure is sort of set up so that schools, um, increasingly corporations, um, the academic community, certain upper middle class neighborhoods, almost everyone is uh, saying to themselves, you know, we don't want you to say things that that not that just so much might might be upsetting, but things that aren't the right view. And that's one of the things I, I don't really understand about. Um, the left right now, they've decided, you know, how fast we should evolve, how should we, we should evolve, and what's okay to say and, and what's not okay to say. And I don't, I don't get it at all. I just think it's, it's odd. And I think it's odd that people in the Democratic Party call themselves liberals now. I haven't met liberals in the Democratic Party, uh, at least uh, rank and file residents in Washington, D.C. In, in years. What happened to the people? I mean, so you know, somebody like Nancy Pelosi, I don't know if you know her. I mean, I just, listeners should understand that Dan, Dan has really been involved in Democratic Party politics and networking and relationships. And, you know, it, you know, as, as, as a civic exercise for decades. Sure. He knows a lot of people. He knows a lot of people. How are these people rational? You know, the old people who, you know, my age, your age, how are they rationalizing this surrender of traditional liberal approaches to speech and expression? That's a really good question. And I thought about the answer to it. When I say to people, I have not met a liberal Democrat in a while, people, uh, you know, they either kind of drop their jaws or they say nothing because they know what I mean. They know what I mean. And, and in certain cases from, uh, some people, from probably the better educated people uh, for whom um, uh -huh. their, quote, yeah. intellectualism was so important as a liberal, uh, they think I got a point and they don't really have an answer to it. So I don't, I don't think, I think the left gets that 
they abandoned free speech. They abandoned expression and that to a certain extent, they abandoned uh, humor. I believe that what the mental process here, tell me what you think of this, is that, yeah, you know, we're making we're making compromises on this now, but the, but the threat from the right, the threat from the right, Trumpism and white supremacy, these threats are so acute that we have to take a sort of war attitude right now to repressing them and uh, you know preventing them from being part of the of the national conversation it's more important that we maintain power and safeguard institutions but burn down the village in order to save it kind of mentality uh, but at least there's a ration i mean look burn down the village in order to save it is a running joke that comes out of vietnam but it's it, it wasn't something that had no logic behind it whatsoever as silly as it is you can convince yourself that that makes a lot of sense one of the things i've noticed and i'm you know i'm in the process of learning this and trying to figure it out but one of the things that's very obvious to me is americans don't know each other anymore uh geographically and they've sort of reduced each other to you know cultural stereotypes in, in a lot of ways and i noticed that in particular when people even some of my smarter friends who are liberals I talk about people who live in southern Missouri or Arkansas, the Little Rock area or whatever. They had a certain stereotype in their mind of, of still of kind of uh, uh, maybe slightly advanced uh, hillbillies. Uh, not like it was maybe 50 years ago, but people who are still into guns and religion. And that's all they really think about. And that, that's not who they are at all. And I have relatives that my, my family's been in southern Missouri for since... Uh, uh, about the Civil War, and they've been in um, Virginia since 1750, and that's just not that's not the way they think. That's not the way they do things, and they're very quiet, and they're they tend to work hard, and and I don't mean like you know they're hardworking Americans, and they're just won't have anything to do with anything, but they tend to want to give good ideas, quote good ideas, the benefit of the doubt. So if they see an administration like Clinton administration at war a uh, 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 Barack Obama administration. Uh, they see things that look like good ideas that are steeped in kindness and toleration. They, they don't want to get in the way of that. So they, they'll sort of step back and say, that's fine. It's not that they don't think of themselves as racist. They're not racist, but they think, okay, the pendulum will swing back when we get another president and they will be able to see some slow change people. That would be the Republicans. When Trump came in, something very unusual happened. When Hillary Clinton, who I like, and I know one of the Clintons pretty well, uh, they're both amazing people, but when she would not go to the South, not go to the Midwest, then she should have known better. She is, um, uh, you know, she basically grew up in a Republican suburb of uh, Chicago, like I grew up in a Republican uh, uh, suburb of uh, Cincinnati. She knows that she should have gone and talked to the people who, live in the South, live in the Midwest, talk to them, court their votes. And she or the people who worked for her decided that we, we are the chosen and we will tell you how, I mean, it, it came off this way. We will tell you how to think. We know that you want me to be president because I'm a woman and um, you know, it's, it's my time and I don't have to go down to Tennessee, Arkansas, Michigan and the West and kiss your ass and ask for your vote. But she did. She did have to. 
and that was a big mistake and they got Trump elected. These people are slow to anger and there's a lot of them and they've been here since the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. They tend to be white, but they're not all white. They're not all white or they're not all white? They're different colors, but they tend to come from a, a you know, a uh, Northern European background and they've been here a long time and they just don't like the idea of suddenly not counting. It's not a matter of being humiliating, humiliated or um, cast out. It's just kind of like, you know, why don't you ask us what we think about these things? Um, I think that same-sex marriage really hit a lot of those people very hard and not for religious reasons, but just because they felt like they weren't even consulted about it. Well, they weren't. <laughs> they were. I mean, that that was the signal. That was the signal event. That's for me. I really don't have a lot of interest in who marries whom. I mean, I do think that morality is something that should be part of our, you know, of, of our government. But be that as it may, I, I that wouldn't be a hill that I would die on, except for the fact that, as Scalia pointed out in his dissent to Obergefell. The problem here wasn't a lack of democracy. It wasn't for the majority. It was an excess of democracy. Every, almost every state, but not all, not every state, where it was put to a vote, said no. Right. So activists said, "Well, fine. We'll get judges to vote instead." And that offends that offends the people that you're talking about, and not only not only people like me. I know. And there's a, there's a lot of these people, and I think that I, I don't know if it's the internet or. Um, a sort of lack of, uh, it's ironic to me that as, as people are supposed to get smarter and we have millennials supposed to be good with tech, that we have people who are very poorly educated about folks in our um, uh, immediate ambit, other states, in addition to Europe. In fact, I know people who know more about Europe than they know about Indiana or Missouri or Tennessee or Arkansas, and that's wrong. Well, do they know about Europe or do they know about Europe uh, as of 15 or 20 years ago? When, uh, because Europe today is, is not what they is probably remember. Well, it's another good question. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, who, I tend to give everything in, around me a wide berth. And you can go to Europe with other Americans and be in an American bubble, either as a tourist or, or, or as a journalist. And uh, that's one of the reasons I do not like tours and I do not like to go to Europe unless I'm working. I'm working, I can understand it, it means more to me. And I'm probably not gonna, it's likely to be around, you know, uh, other Americans. I mean, I like Americans, but I'd like to experience Europe and other places from the standpoint of uh, the people who actually live there. And uh, I, I had a girlfriend who uh, is a good example of this. We're still very good friends. She was from Scarsdale. Uh, she went to Tufts in Columbia, and then she went to uh, LA to start a career in uh, show business. And she had never been to a Midwestern or Southern state until she met my parents at the age of, you know, 50. I mean, that's wrong. <laughs> that's, that's just, just unusual. But to, to get back to what we're talking about, like, you know, what happened? What was the pivotal event? There were, there were a number of things that happened, but I think that um, we've expected with presidential administrations, most of us uh, over the age of, I don't know, 40 or 45, that there is a, a pattern here. There's a pendulum swings back and forth and you have Democrats for a while, they do their ideas. Republicans come in and, and do theirs. And when Trump was elected, which was an extraordinary thing, 
uh, I was absolutely shocked, as I think a lot of other people were, is the way he was treated coming in and immediately after he was inaugurated. It was astounding to me. It changed everything for me. I'm not sure it changed my political views, but it changed, it, it, had, it made me disrespect the people that I'd grown up respecting, which was the mainstream press, a lot of intellectuals, uh, a lot of the white liberals that I had known. It was almost like they had been so spoiled and so conditioned to think that they can get their way and get their uh, progress, if you will, uh, year in, year out, administration in, administration out. And America's never been like that. Um, we go back and forth, we go back and forth. Slow change is what, quote, conservatives are usually about. Democrats are usually about a little bit quicker change. But when I saw, Carl Bernstein is a very good example. A, he was a hero of mine. He went absolutely nuts when, when Trump was elected. And he knew well, he's, uh, Carl's like 10 years older than I am. I, I was absolutely amazed at the way he came after Trump because Trump is in everybody's cup of tea, but anybody who's followed him since the 70s or the 80s knows that he's not a racist. He wasn't a misogynist. Uh, he wasn't, um, you know, he was an, uh, an arrogant business guy out of New York, kind of a uh, John Lindsay Democrat, if you will, in a lot of ways. And not the personality everybody loved, but as soon as he uh, he declares, what was it, June 2015, he's immediately a racist. He's immediately this, immediately that. A guy who's been in the public eye in New York City for his entire life, suddenly he's a racist. It just, And they just bought, they just ran with it. They, they ran with it. It was childish. It was childish. It was like, and I thought, I, I kind of understand it. And I thought it was interesting. I, I remember going on a show kind of like this one where somebody was interviewing me and saying, I understand you're a Trump supporter. I say, this is before Trump was elected. I said, I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm going to vote Hillary Clinton because I'm, I'm uh, uh, loyal. But Trump's done a lot of things for us already. He's opened up the conversation about what we can talk about. He's changed press coverage. He's made, made conversations occur that could not have occurred, you know, but for him, and it's making everybody nuts. And part of the conventional wisdom was on that was that he was engendering or inflaming racism or making people more racist. No, he was just saying what people were thinking. Well, okay, hold on a second. I mean, when you say that, he was just saying what people are thinking isn't really a contradiction in and of itself. If, if, if he had been saying, listen, I know what you're all thinking. Blacks are inferior. I know what you're all thinking. White people should rule the country. Then he would be racist and he would just be saying what people are thinking. But what he was saying was, shouldn't we be focusing on making sure that Americans have jobs before we provide incentives for immigrants to come here? Shouldn't we be enforcing certain laws that are being ignored it shouldn't in other words he was saying what everybody was thinking but hardly any of that was about race in fact until obama i think a lot of us felt we we kind of did not until obama by virtue of the election of obama it was why we did it yeah graduated. Donald, i agree donald trump is no racist he likes people he's good with people i've seen him a few times in a room i haven't met him this is a guy who's good with people not unlike bill clinton not unlike Joe Biden, not unlike in some ways Hillary Clinton. In fact, all four of those people, I would say, are very similar. Very similar. They all like power. You want idiot, you know, Cruz, he's ideological. I mean, that's 
uh, 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 Bernie Sanders is ideological, but these are people who, you know, like power, like the exercise of power, like ideas, and they need to be they need to be on a team. So you know, you've got some Democrats and Republicans, and, and they're actually people who like each other in uh, in real life. I mean, John, you make a very important point. What they like is power, and that this is something you find obviously on both sides of the aisle. But I've always said to myself, I voted for Bill Clinton uh, when in 1992 because I I didn't see anything attractive about George W. Bush, uh, George H. W. Bush. Uh, after four years, um, I w didn't like James Baker one bit. His Israel policy, and Clinton was singing a song of democratic centrism. And I said, my gosh, this, this, this could do it. This just could, maybe we can recapture the center here. And then I looked at what Hillary Clinton had become. And I said to myself, I don't know what her views ever were, but I know what Bill Clinton purported to be. And how does he sit there quietly? The guy who had been a, you know, a centrist Democrat while the party that she's leading is veering off so severely to the left, answer, it was about power. No, I, I think that's right. And at the time, um, I, I, I'm involved with a group, as you know, that, that the Clintons helped start years ago. And it's one of these groups that you know, has a lot of stability. It tends to be liberals, not all liberals. And I know that at the time that um, a lot of the, the um, Hillary Clinton campaign was ramping up. And a lot of the times that decisions were made about who would be running it and who would not be running the campaign. He was having um, perceived health problems. And I think he was a little less hale and hearty than usual. And now I think he's okay. And, and you could just see, he just, he changed, you know, I, I can't figure out the right year, but he needed to make some changes in his lifestyle. And, um, uh, you know, just ones that we can all make. He's look. He, he's not a spring chicken anymore. He's even older than you. It's an interesting group of people you're talking about too, because almost all the people who've been in power for the last few years are seven, eight, seven or eight years older than me. They're all born around 44, 45, 40. It's, it's fascinating to me. And um, I mean, they're the real baby boomers, right? And they tend to uh, hold on to power. They're, they're, they tend to be very, whether they're male or female, very quote, unquote, masculine in their approach to things. Um, and they, um, they think they know better, which is, which is fine. I mean, that's true of a lot of us who get involved in certain professions and certain activities, but they really are kind of an astounding group of people, no matter what side of the political aisle they're on. Speaking of astounding, I, I want to shift the conversation because believe it or not, you and I, the problem with you and me, is that we will talk for very long periods of time. And that's our listeners might not want to listen to us for, for that long. And there, was, there, there were some things you wanted to, you really wanted to talk about. I really think that the press, journalism, which I am from time to time involved with, and, and I worked, as you know, on a student paper. I became a full-time journalist. I like journalists. That the group of people who are doing it became different. And I think part of the reason the, the coverage is different. It's not because of the, the competition or kind of some kind of backlash to Trump, is that you have millennial journalists. And millennials are very different than you and I. You think? 
No, 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 they are. They're astounding. There's, I, I've even been on, uh, I, I'm famous for talking about this, although I haven't for a while, used to be. They're just wired very, very differently. And one of the things, I spend a fair amount of time with people who are younger socially, and I see them. And one of the things you can tell is they've never had speech. They've never had expression. They've never had satire. They've never had bodiness. They've never had anything except this sort of, um, uh, they, were, they, were, they were told to, the men were told to respect and put on a pedestal women, which is fine. It backfired a little bit. Um, the men that I know uh, are a little lost. This is almost anyone between 25 and 40. And they laugh at the most strangest things. Like if you say something that any baby boomer would say, not just Dan Hall or Ron Coleman, uh, 15, 20 years ago, they just giggle like little girls because they've never had any speech. I think you see a lot of these people, uh, speech in the way we think of it, not a uh, First Amendment speech, but just ex expression speech, things you can talk about in the workplace. For Christ's sakes, where do people get to know you better than in the workplace? You can't say anything there. It's very sterile. Right. Uh, I can see that. Everyone's very different. So they have a different sense of, of they, they, they feel like it's okay to enforce good tyranny, good ideas. It's okay to enforce, um, like, um, I was thinking about LBJ the other day. LBJ became a, a, a racial hero, a racial progress hero, because his timing with Martin Luther King was perfect. Absolutely perfect. But even though the civil rights you know, law it had been overdue for, it was almost a hundred years since emancipation when it, when it was enacted, it was 1964. I remember that. I remember that you were one years old, right? right. I was 11. Right. I remember these things, Ron, I've been watching you. Let me, am I a baby boomer? Spiritually, yes. Well, no, no, well, actually you are, if you're born in the, the, uh, the end is, uh, I know you, you were born in the end is 66. So what you are is a subset called a Generation Jones, which is sort of, which is like the, um, the snarkier baby boomers who are kind of like Gen X, but have a lot of friends here. Yeah. You know why? Because by the time we came, we were of age, you guys had used it all up. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm, mid, I'm still mid-level. I mean, everybody jokes about how I'm the oldest blogger ever. <laughs> Norm, Norm Pattis the other day said, how old are you? Anyway, I told him, he said, Jesus Christ, there's somebody older. <laughs> Thank you very much, Norm. Many, many of our listeners are, are even younger than I am, Dan. Tell them who Norm Pattis is. Norm Pattis is a, is a very good Wayne Kunstler-esque. He's the kind of guy who probably modeled his career, as, as I could have, on... on helping the poor, the dispossessed, good civil rights lawyer, fabulous criminal lawyer. And he is a lot like me in the sense that he thinks everything begins with speech. And he's saying things now as I am that sound kind of right wing or quote right wing or conservative. Uh, and he has a ponytail. Has he said anything about the Proud Boys? No, uh, as you know, and uh, Norm knows, because I've been consulting him a little bit, I, I am um, representing a couple of proud, uh, one proud boy and one proud boy accusee, somebody's being accused of me, and forget about who they are. But it, it, it got me very interested in this whole notion of like, what's, what's going on with this proud boy thing? I mean, I, I, I have met lots of Antifa people here and they're kind of sexually ambiguous, 
uh, a little angry, very young, um, even younger than the Proud Boys, uh, but they're very smart and, and very well organized. And no, they are not like a loose group of people or, or just an idea or in somebody's head. They are a group of people and there's a lot of them and they have an agenda and that's fine. They can, this is America, you're allowed to have an agenda. The Proud Boys were really interesting to me because first of all, they all look like the fishing guys they've had growing up and fishing in Alaska, Michigan, Ohio, Tennessee. I mean, you mean professional fishermen, full-time fishermen. Full-time fishermen or fishing guys. Not anglers. Or, no, and they just look, they just, you know, and they get the beards and it's this very masculine thing. And I learned later, and, and I'm still learning. By the way, everybody should read the book that Mark Bray uh, wrote uh, called uh, Antifa, the Antifascist Handbook. You gotta read it just because of when it was written. And it was written uh, in the middle of Trump's first year. He's very honest about what Antifa is and what it is not. We'll get to that in a second. But what I couldn't understand about the Proud Boys was um, I saw them. I lived in downtown D.C. I worked not too far from the Ellipse. And I saw them for at least four of their uh, rallies. You'd see them walking around. And to me, they just they didn't look scary at all. And they were a, a small subset of the people who were there who increasingly, as the months went on, uh, November, December, and then January 6th, look just kind of like people you'd see at the Ohio State Fair, you know, or just like, you know, people I've seen my whole life. Regular people, I think, would be the- No, thing. no, and there were people like, there were people from Beverly Hills, and there were people from like New Canaan, Connecticut. And it was getting pretty uh, cheeky, you know, <laughs> to involved with this. And, and I didn't see people there as, uh, by the way, protesting uh, uh, the steal of an election it was more like getting together and having kind of a last party. But the Proud Boys were there and the Proud Boys are, are playful and fun. And I was reading about them and I was trying to figure out how they could ever have been designated as a hate group. I mean, they are, the worst thing you can say about them is that the worst is this is an all male group. Okay, well, that's cool. Sometimes I wanna be around just men. Sometimes I wanna be around just Irish people. Sometimes I just wanna be around <laughs> recovery alcoholics. You know, it depends. I see you're narrowing and narrowing the subsets. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Sometimes I just want to be around my Jewish friend. Uh, sometimes, sometimes every once in a while, this could make news. I want to be around just really boring, goofy-looking Anglo's like me, come from places like England and Germany. But you know, it's okay to to, to want to be a member of a club that is uh, has an anatomical kind of demographic to it. And then the other thing about them is that they were. I, sometimes the word chauvinist has been used, but if you look at their bylaws, which you reminded me of the other day when we were talking, you know, when I was trying to tell you who the hell I was, and um, their bylaws are really about, there's so, there's so many good things that they say they're involved with, and I don't think they're rhetorical devices. You look at their bylaws, and you look at their early uh, uh, Gavin McGinnis uh, era um, uh, statements about what they really are. They're funny and playful and a little bit satirical, but this is this is a real group. This is like a real fraternity. This is like the Fidelts at Duke, <laughs> you know. Right. And 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 they are guys, and they like Western civilization. I thought Western civilization. Well, what's not to like? I mean, isn't that like you know? Let's see, that's uh, Greece and Rome and Egypt. Then we have the Dark Ages. We have Renaissance, and then we have certain kinds of political institutions emerging and. Germany and France and in the British Isles. What's that's given us a lot. Eastern Eastern religion and Eastern culture has given us a lot too. But 
you know, Western civilization, that, that's good. And therefore Western civilization, why is that a hate group? Why is that far right? And even some of my more intelligent friends in the fourth estate, and I know a few people who are reporting on the very things that I'm involved with now with uh, these two clients. Right. They use the expression far right almost in every paragraph. And if I can do nothing else on this sort of, you know, uh, proud boy press tour, I, I apparently am going on. I would like people to realize that there's nothing far right or extremist or neo-fascist or white nationalist about promoting Western civilization. I do have a friend who works for one of the wire services, who's a very good writer, who says, well, these are the wrong guys, you know, to be behind Western civilization. I say, well, nobody else is doing it. The professors aren't. Uh, you, don't, you don't see it in the press. Uh, you don't see all these like woke, not woke, but uh, white liberals and corporations. I mean, all these people are excuse the expression chicken shit. They're not doing anything. At least somebody's doing something. And, um, you know, like in any new group, you have problems. But Proud Boy started in 2016. Uh, it was started by a comedian. I think that's interesting. Def I will tell you that Antifa was not started by a comedian. <laughs> um, they, they, nor does it admit any, nor did it admit any. And it's a very, uh, I think very self-deprecating, but I don't see, uh, you know, it, and I don't say things like this unless I really mean them. And I guess I have something to lose. I've lost a few friends already. I lost a client over this, a good client that I had for 30 years. I don't see anything wrong with promoting Western civilization and how Western got to be synonymous with some kind of, uh, white supremacy is beyond me. It just blows me away. Uh, Western civilization has allowed us to have conversations in democratic institutions that were not here before. And uh, I wanna throw a nod to the French. Uh, it, they, these institutions and these ideas happen to be funneled and preserved by uh, parts of the world in Europe, like uh, in uh, you know, Vienna, Paris, uh, Florence, still to this day, London. Yeah, that's Western Europe, Central Europe, and Northern Europe. But it's given us a lot. But, you, but you're not giving, if you want to give credit to France, though, John, you have to, Dan, you have to also. Why do you, you call have, me, this is funny. I am called Dan. John Luck. You, is that, is that funny? you're looking at my name? I don't know why I would call you John. I've never called you John in my life. You can call me John twice. It's okay. We'll talk about it after the meeting. Yeah, that is odd. That, no, no, no. Strange. So I get I answer to John. I have to because, you know, I have, I have numerals after my name. I mean, <laughs> all of, all of us Western guys do, <laughs> and all of you white guys are called John. All of we'll call JD or John. And I was named. I was named in effect. I found this. I finally figured this out by a guy who was a Confederate cavalry soldier. Isn't that amazing? Well, so I'm, uh, there's, so there's, there's something wrong with this interview right now. I mean, you should yes. probably just cut it off. You're complicit. No, but but you, what, I, what I wanted to say, went back when you were John, going back to being Dan, is that if you want to, if you want to give a shout out to France, you have to give a, a shout out to Derrida and to deconstruction. And the yeah. fact is, all the things that you just listed as being inherent goods, uh, basically liberal values are rejected by the left now. The left is does not represent, there's nothing liberal about it. They, th th their interest is in power and control, 
not in they consider democracy not to be an inherent good that doesn't need to be explained but rather something to be feared and something unless it works for them so if judges get you know if, if democracy doesn't work for them then judges will get them what they want but you know the the, the contempt for differing points of view or trump voters is entirely incompatible with a democracy but the idea that hey, maybe this year I'll vote for a Democrat, maybe this year I'll vote for a Republican because I, I'm interested in, this person seems to have a good faith I, uh, approach to, to, you know, to, to governing. No, I, I, I agree with you totally, except that I, I hear people say that uh, the elites and the Democratic Party is only about power. I, I, I don't, I think that they have better intentions than that. I mean, you know, all sorts of bad things have better Who's intentions. The when you say they, who, whose face appears before you when you in your mind when you say they? No, no, no. The, uh, the Democrat. I think. I think that all they have left. I mean, it's 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 an inference you can draw. What else could they be interested in? Just except just power. I mean, here's here's twelve tenets. I was just looking at these of the Proud Boy tenets that the left uh, the left rejects. So the Democratic Party, a lot of them reject. There's twelve. I'm gonna I'm gonna read them. And I, this is fascinating. And these are not rhetorical devices, what Proud Boys are about. Minimal government. Okay, that's okay. That's not too right-wing. Maximum freedom, anti-political correctness. There's three. Anti-drug war, anti-racism, closed borders, reinstating a spirit of Western chauvinism. I'm not sure I would use the word chauvinism. It sounds militaristic, but that's okay. I get it. Anti-racial guilt, you know, you shouldn't feel bad about being a white guy or a white woman or a white boy or a white girl. Pro-free speech, pro-gun rights, that's cool. Glorifying the entrepreneur, fine. And here's the most evil one, venerating the housewife. The 12 tenets of Proud Boys, that was written like in the very beginning, it's a relatively new group. I don't think they've changed that much. I might have relabeled these a little bit, but what's wrong with that? I mean, what's wrong with Indians? I don't get it. Well, you're asking the wrong guy. You're asking the wrong guy, obviously. <laughs> so, Dan, you know, I, how did you manage? Was it the alcohol to, to be so open-minded about all this? I mean, what we find is that people consider themselves lifetime members. And this is what I'm going to sort of close with in terms of our discussion, just because of time. Why do you suppose you didn't just say, listen, I'm, I'm on this team. I've spent my life investing in this team this is where i've known this is this is who i know this is how i can max them. i'm still practicing law i need these contacts i can't i can't uh, you know offend clients or prospective clients why do you think you are unlike so many other successful professionals and the people in, in our profession the legal profession why were you able to do it and open your mind up to saying maybe i should look at the world and the people around me for myself rather than accept the narratives. You know, it, it's true, and you made a reference to um, alcohol. It, uh, I'm, this summer, I'm gonna have three and a half decades, 35 years of not having a drink or a drug, which is a good thing, but I don't define myself that way. When I was talking to somebody at the end of college, they were asking me about, I said, we were saying, what were you like when you were a freshman? This was our senior year. And everybody said I was very honest. I like being as honest as I can. I don't really have anything to hide that I know of. And once you get to the point where you really don't care what people think and you're willing to be honest about yourself and what you've done and haven't done, it's a superpower. 
Um, it helps to work for yourself, but I keep getting people telling me things like, uh, uh, and, and, they're, and they're right in a sense. They say, well, they're right in some context. Uh, you're, you can do this now because you're older, uh, you're established, you have your own firm and blah, 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 blah. Well, the truth is if you don't get that way, before you become older and established, you're never gonna be able to be honest with yourself and the rest of the world, you just can't do it. So, you know, um, I feel sorry for people who say to me, I don't think, I, I'd love to help you, Dan. I'm a millennial, I'm 35, I work for a big firm, but I can't, I can't say any of the things that you're saying or even have a discussion about them because I might not make partner. You were allowed to say all sorts of outrageous things when I was coming up, um, and it was, you know, it was formal and, and you had to be polite and civil, but you're allowed to have discussions about how the world worked, who you were, what you didn't do. And I just have not, you know, I, I, I have problems with the group that helped get me sober. I mean, the, the group that helped get me sober is a uh, worldwide phenomena, yet it's um, still in the guise of anonymous and, and you know, to attract people. And I'd rather choke to death or fall over than walk around and have my clients and people I work with not know who I really am. So that, that, that probably helps a little bit. I also don't consider myself, I mean, I never considered myself to be politically correct. Here's the only thing that made sense about me registering Republican. I've always had a problem with, uh, with unions because of an experience I had working in a factory, a keyboard cookie factory when I was 18 and somebody, basically came up and told me not to work so hard. It, it just, it threw me. It threw me, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to work so hard? And um, all my friends were going to Europe. I was working in a factory. No, we weren't poor. I just figured, what the hell? I gotta do something this summer. So I worked in Kiev, a cookie factory until I cut my finger off. It's a long story. I was probably the only person at Duke freshman year who was getting workers comp. I just don't look at the world of, as a team sport. I don't look as America as a team sport. There's Lots of ideas and ideologies. And we need to see a little this one, a little that one. But it's people that solve problems. And, and what I don't like, and I know we didn't really um, uh, talk about this, but what I don't like about Antifa, and I'm learning more about them, is that they have this great ruse going on. I won't call it a ruse. We'll call it a dodge. BLM does something of the same, but with Antifa, it's brilliant. Antifa has decided there's no First Amendment right and no right of expression where fascism, you know, is involved. I mean, there's just, you don't debate fascism, you destroy it. That's a quote from someone from 50 years ago. And what a great dodge, what a scam. I get to decide what's fascist, you know? I get to decide what's fascist. And what I'm finding is, and, and I, I think this is true if you kind of look at the Antifa rank and file, a lot of it, uh, anything that is quote masculine, or aggressive is considered fascist to an Antifa type person. Yep, that's exactly right. Anything I don't like is that, and, and BLM is, is really gotten a lot of mileage with this because nobody likes to be called a racist, especially millennials, because they feel guilty about everything. Millennial men feel guilty about aggressing men, women sexually. You know, I mean, I mean human, nat human nature has been demonized in millennial culture. Everything I don't like, it's fascist. How that happened, uh, it's so sad. But there really is a very serious kind of way of looking at 
the world that, that some of these anti-fascist groups have and Antifa in particular, and they're very smart, at least smart enough not to be in the Capitol on January 6th for the most part. Uh, maybe one guy and he was nuts, right? So far, so far in what we're finding out, but, but it just, it just it, the, the only point I wanted to make, and I know you're running out of time, is Antifa is very serious, um, no playfulness at all, and it, Really, if you read the book by Mark Bray and teach the anti-fascist handbook, and it's it's very honest. And one of the things is I'd love to do a search for the word masculine, because when they see masculine, something, quote, masculine or traditionally masculine, that's fascist. Jesus Christ, if I walked around with that weapon, I could call anything fascist. Do, do your old friends in the Democrats, among Democrats, do you think they believe that they can control Antifa? They keep telling me at this point, first of all, it's, it's a lot like when I say I don't mean liberal Democrats anymore. They just look at me like they don't know what to say. Uh, not that that's a, a, a brilliant statement to make. I just, it's in a, uh, Democrats in the left, quote, the left has become illiberal. They've become bigots. And, and the way they justify it is they say, well, if it's a bad idea or an idea that's not good and doesn't have sweetness and light in it, you know, uh, we can condemn it and, and shut it down. And, and uh, I think they think of Antifa to answer your question uh, is still sort of an idea and not a group of people. And that's wrong. This is a group of people and they're good at what they do. They've been doing a lot longer than the Proud Boys. We gotta have a part two on Proud Boys and Antifa at some point, but that's after you like, you know, you're able to get Liza Minnelli and the other people in your book. See, that's the beauty of Dan Hall, is that not only does he invite himself on, he invites himself to come back. <laughs> we'll just do three. We'll just do three. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate being able to, to talk about this a little bit. You're great. You're, Dan, it's true. It's listening to you. We, we, you maybe you should just be the, the other guy in the podcast. We should just do with the Ron and Dan. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe we can. You know, we should switch names. You could be Hall. I could be Coleman. How'd you get an Irish last name for Christ's sake? <laughs> That's a good question. That's a very good question. I told you the Irish Republic. I told you the Irish Airlines story about my dad. You know, you did. And um, I, my favorite moment on Twitter is when some people thought the two of us together were being Jews. I got to be a Jew for about a day. Like, <laughs> what, what's wrong with these guys? And once somebody said, they're Jews. I thought, this is it. I've arrived. <laughs> On that note, you've arrived and now we're going to depart. Thank you, Dan. We will have you back. We, me, Jeremy, and I, my producer. Thanks for putting up with me. I appreciate it. Great talking to you. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com, or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.